Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Podcast. I'm Steve Henderson and I'm joined as ever by Mr. Ben Mitchell. Hello, Ben. Hello. How are you this new year? This nearly the end of January, new year. Yes. Yeah, but I like to pretend that we haven't spoke to each other since the last podcast. Well, we sort of have, but not with recorded words. Those are the ones that matter. Absolutely. The conversations we have of Valley were the ones in front of a microphone. Absolutely. And that's why they're recorded forever. Yes. When we're actually just talking amongst ourselves, it's very painful and stilted. Yes. Because we actually both don't like animation. The whole thing is a facade. So we have very little common ground. I I just love sports and all the sports. The, my favourite sports are the most sporty sports. I love all them. Yeah. So it's the start of another Squiggly podcast, another year of the Squiggly podcast, hopefully. We're in our second year now. Uh, we had a great year last year, plenty of uh, great guests and, um, and and great features. And, you know, it's been an exciting year for Squiggly and uh, we're at the start of another one. Uh, so what have you been up to over the, uh, the Christmas period, Ben? Uh, it's all kind of a blur. There was, I mean, I went away for a while after, shortly after the Bradford Animation Festival. I hightailed it out of England, did some, uh, some business in Canada, uh, and some squiggly stuff while I was there. Got some really, really great coverage that, uh, we will be, uh, drip feeding you over the next few months. Some great stuff from the National Film Board of Canada. I spent quite a bit of time over there talking to people, uh, some, uh, New talents and established talents coming up with some uh, some new projects. It'll be good. It'll be interesting. So pay attention. Keep listening. It's only going to get better. You've already put up a... Well, it's a documentary. It's it's nearly an hour long on the Annecy Festival, uh, which is a great piece of work, Ben. So well done on that, mate. Well, thank you. If anyone didn't get to Annecy and they don't completely object to looking at our faces, then I would uh, I would recommend it. It's on the site. Uh, if you just type in Annecy into the search bar, I'm sure it'll come up. And it's like, a, who's in Who's in that? Who isn't in that documentary, Ben? Everyone's in it. The whole Annecy crew's there. You've got Chris Landreth. Uh, you've got uh, Robert Morgan. Everybody's in it. Eric Goldberg. Who else, Ben? Who am I missing out? Uh, they can watch the video. We're going to give them everything for crying out loud. Yeah. Good point. Good point. We've been doing videos for the last uh, year and a bit on uh, Squiggly. We have a video section. If you haven't seen it, go check it out. We have some nice little featurettes and things. But I think that the longer form stuff, like uh, like this Annecy documentary, makes sense as a kind of extension of what the whole squiggly thing is all about. In much the same way that starting a podcast nearly two years ago was a logical extension back then. It does take a lot of time, and uh, we're both very busy, busy fellows, but... Uh, when the opportunity arises, it's something I think we'd like to do more of. So I'm kind of treating it as a bit of a pilot, I suppose, or a three-part pilot for what we're not entirely sure, but uh, these things have a way of kind of organically working themselves out. Uh, the next video will be on the several other festivals that we attended uh, after Annecy, uh, Encounters, and Bradford, and uh, I was in Montreal at the end of November for the Summits de Cinema d'Animation, which was a lot of fun. Great to sort of get a take on what the attitude in the industry is like in sort of my uh, my home turf. Because I'm a big fan of Quebec. Not necessarily in political terms, they're kind of making fools of themselves at the moment, but uh, that there's just as thriving and just as enthusiastic an animation crowd over there as there is here in England is uh, is very nice to see. 
So uh, that was a lot of fun. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to bring you the footage from that shortly. Time allowing, but it's already well underway. Excellent. And hopefully later in the year, possibly in the spring, there'll be a third video uh, with a specific focus on the uh, the current and new output from the National Film Board of Canada. But yes, the Annecy video has a lot of really, really good filmmakers on there. Like you mentioned, Plumpton, Robert Morgan, uh, the Disney folks, uh, National Film Board. It's all good. Marvellous. There's also some homegrown talent on there as well, so mm. plenty to look out for. What else have we got on the Squiggly Podcast, Ben? On the Squiggly Podcast? Oh, yes, that's the other thing we do. Well, midst our usual prattling on, we have Daniel Sousa, director of the recently Oscar-nominated Feral. Ooh. We also have Jane Pilling, who is the director of the British Animation Awards, which will be coming soon, so it will be nice to hear a little bit more about that. Ah. And fresh from his roles at this year's Click Festival in Amsterdam, Mr. Amida Midi of Cartoon Brew. It's tantalizing, Ben. Let's get on with it. Are you tingling? I'm tingling all over. My gosh. I'm tingling, but only in one place. <sighs> Okie doke. Hey, Steve. Hey, Ben. Good to see you again. What's new in the animation world? What's happened since I've been away? What's happened since you've been away? Well, obviously, with you being away, animation ground to a complete stop. Uh-huh. There was also Christmas, so not a great deal happened there. Hmm. <laughs> I'm kidding. Quite a lot happened. <laughs> oh, Steve. <laughs> oh. <laughs> We're delightful. But, 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 but seriously... Uh, what? <laughs> it's horrible when sort of pretend douchebag laughter turns into actual laughter. <laughs> it's hard to tell when one ends and the other begins. <laughs> <laughs> oh my, well. New developments, animation news, fire it at me. I'm a willing receptacle. Well, basically it's award season and there's uh, there's plenty of news going around. Everyone gets excited this time of year, don't they? Because it's awards time and everyone's sort of all giddy and who will win this, this trophy and then go back to their darkened rooms to continue animating for another five years before they're back out into the spotlight. If they're lucky. If they're lucky, yeah, absolutely. Best case scenario. This is what you hitched your wagon to, folks. Enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, one of the award ceremonies that got quite a response was uh, was an award ceremony where Emma Thompson was the recipient of a of an award for her work in Saving Mr. Banks, the the Walt Disney biopic, or I suppose you could call it, where Tom Hanks plays uh, pl- plays Walt Disney and uh, Emma Thompson plays uh, P. L. Travers, the author of Mary Poppins, and um, Meryl Streep uh, presented this award to Emma Thompson for a work and then went on this kind of rant about how Walt Disney was an, a racist and an anti-Semite and, and uh, didn't really paint a good picture of him. Well, it's all the stuff that I think we've heard before, but there's a context factor that needs to sort of be considered. Well, here's, here's the thing. it's It's been heard before. It's been said before. And it's never really been verified, really. I mean... Well, clarified. Clarified, yeah. You can say that he was an anti-Semite because he puts Jewish peddlers in films or he's a racist because they did Song of the South. Mm. Was he Was he that or was he just was that just of the time? 
you know, in, in 50 years' time, in 60 years' time, will people think that we're racist or homophobic for the for the things that we say now that are slightly slightly risque or slightly kind of um, of the culture, but ultimately will end up being seen as narrow-minded or, or, or even racist or, or I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, we like to think that we're living in enlightened times, but, um, you know, we're going to be somebody's past, aren't we? Well, also, enlightenment comes with it extra sort of degrees of sensitivity and, and things are kind of misappropriated. People focus on the wrong areas of racism or homophobia or things that are usually kind of harmless, you know? And so a comedian tells a joke that uses a certain word and gets raped over the cults. But what effect is that person really going to have? Whereas, you know, the way the news media or certain news outlets can use that kind of subject matter as a prop for their own ends to, you know, cultivate their own narratives and, and coverage and whatnot is actually quite damaging. But, you know, the way it's presented, it is staggering how little the general public are able to really kind of think about things beyond how it's presented to them on a completely superficial level. So I think you look at something from history an old sitcom, an old movie, an old whatever, and you're not really presented with the context that it originally came out against, and then uh, it can look quite bad. It's very cynical because it's like the say that people back then had no capacity for satire or no capacity for, for irony. Mm-hmm. You know, There are people who believe that the honeymooners the driving force of the humor behind the honeymoon is was a, a guy who was constantly threatening to beat his wife. But if you ever actually watch that show, the show is about how little, how utterly ineffectual he is. And in those sort of declarations, he's essentially declaring his utter impotence and worthlessness in a relationship where the woman completely wears the trousers mm-hmm. and has him under her thumb. But a contemporary audience who just say, would see like a 30 second clip of it because of the way it looks because of the 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 time it's from probably wouldn't credit it with that level of sophisticated writing and i think a lot of the older films that have racial content in them in the way that films that we make now have racial content in them uh, quite like uh django unchained i mean that caused a bit of a stir but i think at the end of the day more people than not got it Mm mm-hmm but maybe 50 years from now, people would be watching that and going, oh, my God, they were so racist in 2012. Exactly. You know, uh, I completely missed the point of it. And I think that there are a lot of films where that's sort of the case. And I think a lot of films that were actually celebrations of uh, different cultures, because they included in those celebrations things that at the time were stereotypical, become racially insensitive. Mm -hmm. And we talked a little bit about this actually with Jerry Beck in the last podcast, how there are lots of old uh, cartoons that are beautifully animated that will never see a home video release because people wouldn't know how to handle it. Or, not unreasonably, some people might be upset by them. Um, Mm -hmm. There are obviously degrees, and so Disney has its dark past, but every studio does, you know. Warner Brothers, every live-action feature film, studio, you know, everything. There's no precedent set for high moral values in the sort of Hollywood film system. No. You know? So I'm not sure why it would be a sort of huge surprise. I mean, everyone has that one, like, elderly relative that you kind of don't want to have at the dinner party. When you bring, like, guests over because you're worried that they're going to say something 
that, you know, they're set in their ways kind of thing. And you know that they're not really mean people and they don't think they're being mean when they're saying things that are a little uh, uh, dodgy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think in the in that sense, yeah, well, Walt Disney lived in a different time, probably had a different way of thinking. Um, I, I'm sure that there are virtues and uh, and probably deeply, deeply negative things to say about him, but I'm not entirely sure who could be an authority. Even the sort of responses to this Meryl Street speech from people who worked with him or worked for him you know there are there are factors that that weigh in in terms of well how firsthand is this recollection you know how gilded by time is this recollection uh so Meryl Streep I wouldn't say is a, a the, the the best person to go to for that kind of history lesson nor are we <laughs> <laughs> well this is what annoyed me about it uh maybe annoyed's too strong a word but what that sort of got to me as somebody uh, in, in you know who respects animation and, and the industry and and, and and everything else Meryl Streep is a person that can she can gather a, a crowd around her she can you know she can get the attention she, she doesn't know the story but she's still telling the story and and people will hear it and people will go oh Meryl Streep said uh, Walt Disney's a racist I've heard that before okay Walt Disney's a racist let's carry on with our lives they won't be bothered about the fact that all the other stuff he did, because he was very forward-thinking, he was a futurist for God's sake, which which people tend to gloss over. You know, they're more likely to talk about him being a racist than a futurist, which is baffling. The thing that's most annoying about this isn't the fact that it's been said; it's the fact that there's been no kind. Of, it's just been taken as gospel because a famous person said it. Yeah, and that's the annoying thing because this this industry it's seen. I've almost call it a second-class industry, whereas film is. Uh, debated and uh, gone over a thousand times over and there's a thousand different uh, thoughts for for every movie and and things like that and there are um, there are the same thoughts and the same thought process that go into animation and animators however it's not as public as it should be Mm -hmm. you know and as a result of that this speech that Meryl Streep said will have the consequence that people will just take it as, as gospel and get on with their lives and a lot of damage is really done to the reputation of, of Walt Disney. I mean, you know, he's a, he's a popular figure. Obviously, he's, he can take a few dents, but um, it's the idea that somebody's going around now misinformed because of Meryl, Meryl Streep's speech that kind of gets to me a little. Well, it goes into the whole thing of, of again, how shitty the news media are is that they're very, very interested in condemnation and not interested in vindication. For the most part, people are kind of vilified, but when that's turned out not to be the case, very rarely do they get any kind of apology. Yes. Without the threat of of huge, high-profile legal action. There have been a few responses to the Meryl Streep speech, which weren't, to uh, most people's credit, I think no one really got like completely up in arms and and, and aggressive and hostile to her. I just think that, that people sort of realize that she was taking some apocrypha as fact. And one chap, actually, I quite enjoyed his, his response because it was quite even-handed. Like, he wasn't calling Disney a saint. Uh was uh, Amida Medes mm-hmm. uh, over at uh, Cartoon Brew there. Had some interesting uh, uh, things to say about the inaccuracies and the um, how things have been kind of contorted over time. 
Speaking of Amida Midi, one of our squiggly writers, our squiggly correspondents, if you will, went on a little trip to Click in Amsterdam. Because I think their theme, one of the themes this year was the sort of cartoon modern era, mm-hmm. which uh, Amida Midi is, of course, very well versed. I think he's written probably the best book on that particular subject, which is called Cartoon Modern. It's one to be beat. It's a nice piece of work. I mean, he's written a lot of stuff for uh, various studios, art of books, cultural histories. He, of course, co-founded and writes for Cartoon Brew regularly. And Tom Sanders, who uh, did some writing and journalism for us over there in Amsterdam, was able to have a little chat with him. Let's hear from Amida Midi. Why don't we? So I've, I've curated a lot of different festivals, okay. a lot of different events, at least for a decade, right. since I was like 22, 23. Okay. And all of them have usually been like a screening or a retrospective, mm-hmm. like one program. It's either a lecture, it's a one cartoon modern screening. Uh, I've never done an entire comprehensive survey of any topic okay. like this, yeah. where we didn't just choose like one screening. It's such a broad topic. If you yeah. look at the book, yeah, that it yeah. really needs multiple programs. And, and with this one, there's like six programs. Special guest is like Paul Rudish, who's connected to that exactly. era as well, or actually to the revival of that era. But my co-programmer was Tunde Volan Brook. She's yeah. the head, head of programming. Okay. And we really did it together. So she deserves just as much credit as I do, but we had a lot of fun because if the entire theme of Click this year is fabulous 50s cartoon modern, we can go in any direction. We can explore it in all the different ways that it exists. So we look at Dutch cartoon modern, which nobody's ever looked at. We did this really interesting compare and contrast with West and East. And it's fun to see the films. Like One of the things with films is you can have a totally different impression of it if it's programmed differently. Like if you just show like 10 UPA shorts together, there's not that much context. But when you put like one of these American films versus an Eastern film, it changes your impression of both films because you're comparing and contrasting and you're noticing differences between yeah. the approaches, both stylistic and, and thematic and directorial. Mm. So, so we had the freedom to try different things like that. And so I think because most people, when I think of cartoon models as a genre, you think UPA straight away and you think maybe... Flintstones, things like that, the popular, the mainstream things. The year we put them against something that wasn't mainstream, you're kind of like, well, actually, this is a broad field yeah. and it makes it more interesting. So, is this a bucket list for you? As in, did you come to the, the field and go, right, I've got loads of ideas of what I want to show? No, because one of the things with any kind of programming like this is you have limitations. Mm-hmm. One of them is what can you get to yeah. screen in a decent quality. There's all sorts of things that festivals need to do for uh, getting rights, getting prints, licensing. I don't deal with any of that, but they have to deal with okay. that. And, and so you're limited by if a print doesn't exist or if a copy, even a decent uh, digital copy of some film, you can't show it. So, yeah. so it's, it's not a bucket list or anything like that, but it is like the Cartoon Modern Essentials is, I think, one of my favorite programs ever of, of putting these together because we, I just said I'm going to make it really fun it's going to be representative you're going to have all the great designers and directors of that era at yeah. least in the US it's just going to be a really fun tight little 70 minute program so so there was no bucket list it was just like what is the best things that we could come up with for 
for this program that I enjoyed yeah. and, and that, we, that were available. And we had long lists of films for all the programs, and we had to cut, tear down, curate. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Was there anything that, you, that there wasn't a print on that you really wanted to show? Because I guess, I think it's the 50s, there would have been prints that were just lost. Or yeah. That weren't good enough. I don't know, like Phlebas, we, we showed it off of, uh, it's in the essentials, but we could have had like a better, I, I think it's like a VHS copy actually. <laughs> Because it's never the print was hard to get. Yeah. So, yeah. But I don't think I think everyone yeah. hears a you know animation nut, so they don't care how good the quality is. And they're looking for other things. Yeah. Over HD. Well, no, I mean it helps. It helps to have a great print of any film. It, it changes your impression of it. Um, Tender Game is a film by John and Faith Hubley. Yeah. And for years and years and years. There's only been a couple prints of it that have been available. All the video copies have been made from a couple prints, and they're all red. I don't know if you know what red prints are, but uh, 16 millimeter fades over time. Okay. And a print, a film print, will turn red. It's just some of the color stocks that they used go bad over time. Okay. They didn't plan for it like 50 yeah, years yeah, ago. Yeah. But all the prints of Tender Game were kind of red. And, um, and MoMA, Museum of Modern Art in New York, restored the film two years ago. And when I saw that restoration, it was like a completely different film. Okay, you could really see what they were trying to do graphically. It was a completely different experience. So for this screening, I said we can't show the bad prints. I we need to show the MoMA print. Yeah. And they had to do a lot of legwork because it's been shown only a couple times outside of MoMA. I mean, they just restored it, but we pulled enough strings. And John and Faith Hubley's daughter Emily. She helped uh, okay. uh, arrange, and, and we got this amazing. It's a digital copy of the restored print, but it's it's amazing, and and, and so we're, I was really happy that it's like an exclusive, near enough an exclusive. It's almost, European yeah. exclusive. It is. Yeah. I, mean, I don't think. No, I think it was shown in Poland maybe last year okay. once too. So it's not, but it definitely hasn't been seen outside of like two or three different events. Wow. So yeah, what films immediately leapt to your mind when you sat down to do it? And they said right. Of the UPA films, you have to include Gerald McBoyne and Rudy Tutu. Those, to me, are the two contrasting poles of what UPA was all about, which is Gerald McBoyne, which is kind of whimsical, simplified, pared-down design. It's it's animation boiled down to its most basic, right? And that's one school. And Rudy Tutu is the opposite which is excess and I, I don't want to say design for design's sake because it's not that but it's a beautiful combination of form excess uh, pattern texture depth put together in a way that it helps advance the story in a cinematic form yeah right and, and that that to me is the other end of design when you use design to create a cinematic experience. So those are the two poles. And, and those, you, uh, even though they're familiar, when you see them on a big screen and, and you see them like in this context, they're always interesting to see. You're, yeah. you're always going to find something new in both of those films. They are the pinnacles of, of really UPA to yeah. me. Okay. So, so those two we put in. Um, two Whistle, Plunk, and Boom, you can't avoid that right. because that is to me like... Disney... It's like they jump ship, kind of. We do something different. They wanted to kind of just show, like, we could do this too, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and he gave it to Ward Kimball, who was the studio's modernist, Walt Disney did. Yeah. And 
they not only did they like create a film that was very modern and stylized, but they outdid UPA in terms of entertainment value, uh, pure design craziness, and, and entertainment. Yeah. So it's it's, it's really like we they didn't Disney is they were not a modern studio. They were actually lagging behind a lot <laughs> in the fifties. But the few moments where Walt let his artists free and kind of said just do what you want they stepped up their game because there's a marriage in there of Disney ideals and, and the cartoon modern you're kind of right feel and that, I think the way they do that and transition it is very clever because well, it could have been really bad well <laughs> yeah and well, Ward was very conscious of that Ward mm. was in the modern design and animation back in the 40s in the early 40s right so he he'd been wanting to do this for like 10 years at the studio he'd wanted to do something so he was he understood all that. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the guys didn't, but he was on top of it. So he knew every new film that was coming out, modern animation-wise, and he just, when he had his chance, he went all out. And he actually did that. The Owl yeah. and the Classroom mm-hmm. at the beginning of the film, the introduction, they're done in a more full animation That's style. It. Yeah, exactly. And, and the cavemen and the teaching are done more stylized. So, so he, con- he contrasted... Uh, full animation with stylized for effect. So you mentioned Ward Kimball. Mm-hmm. Your book. Mm-hmm. Why has it not been published? What's, what's going on? All I'm going to say is that next year is Ward's centennial. Okay. And I'm very committed to making sure that his story will be told okay. for his centennial. Right. Is it all written? Near enough? Everything was done, yeah. The book was done, but unlucky circumstances, yeah. When I do tell Ward's story, uh, I'm going to make sure to tell the story of the book as well. Interesting. Like uh, like what, everything that's, that's gone on. Cause, oh, because I suppose you want to tell Ward's story, not his Disney life. Most books about Disney animators, uh, they say like, here's the story of this animator, and then he had these hobbies on the side. He did some. He was also an artist yeah. on the side, and that makes no sense. You're an artist first, and then you're an animator, right? So, so this book consciously, we said we're going to look at Ward as an artist first and foremost, and then look at all the different kinds of art that he did. Yeah, he was a, uh, a jazz musician. He was a painter. He was an animator. He was a filmmaker. He was a cartoonist. He was a provocateur, kind of like a conceptual artist. Um, So he was a book author. A trained enthusiast. (laughs) I would say that's performance art to me. It was was one of the most incredible pieces of art to build this entire universe in your backyard and to play the role for years of of when he was there. He was the conductor. And that was his own private world. It wasn't... You know, many people didn't get to see that. I yeah, think that's what's lucky. Because yeah. all the, the say the nine old men all had these lives that were totally outside of Disney. You know, for me as a historian, it's important to tell them the story. Yeah, and, and I can tell you, like the reason Disney was very much against seeing the book published was because I, I had access to Ward's diaries, and I was the only person outside of Ward and his wife that had ever seen those diaries the kids had seen them too after he died yeah right but nobody outside the family had seen those and 
I was given access to those. And of course, it's hard to refute stuff that he wrote 60 years ago. The Disney company would say, well, well, Walt wouldn't do that. Walt Disney wouldn't say that. Like, well, he said it, you know, yeah. wrote it down in 1942 that he did say that. So, exactly. so um, He's not going to lie in his diary, is he? No, because they weren't intended for anybody exactly. other than himself. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I mean, again, nobody ever saw those. So, you know, the Disney company has a specific narrative about Walt Disney and who he was. <laughs> and this book changed the narrative a little that they built as a corporation about who their founder is. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so they, they don't want to see it published. But next year, maybe. Centennial. Centennial. I'm 2014. It. That's centennial. it. <laughs> Let's go back to a cartoon model. Um, your book, when you set out to write it, did you intentionally think that the word cartoon modern would then stand for the whole genre? No, it was the, the most pleasant surprise. And I, I would say, like, for me, the coolest thing that happened yeah. was we named an art movement. Like, that's everybody's dream is, like, yeah. to, na- to name an art movement. And, and we never anticipated that that would be... Like, when we did the book, there was really no name for it. It was commonly, back then, it was called the UPA style. Other artists would call it UPA style. And, of course, that was just a term used within the industry. There was really... There's so much diversity there that it's not really a UPA style, right? It's yeah, just, exactly. But, but there was no other term for it. So when we were coming up with the title for the book, we had an incredibly long list of names for it. And, and some of them were like Daddy-O Design, Baby Boo Beautiful. <laughs> I can't imagine that the same ring. Real Bopcorn. That'd be amazing if people were going, that's the real popcorn, that. Yeah, exactly. So, so we, we really had no intention of ever naming the style that was, but, but the name of the book became the term. Yeah. I think that's as a historian, like anything you could want is like to like name an art movement. Yeah. You know, and, 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 it's, and it happened by accident. Like it wasn't planned. It wasn't planned at all. Yeah. So what, what made you, because it's quite straightforward, cartoon, modern, it's cartoon. It's modern. Yeah. Is that, that literally how it came about? You know, I don't remember the sequence because it was like 10 years ago. Okay. But, uh, but I remember it was my editor, Alan Rapp. Mm-hmm. R-A-P-P. Okay. Alan Rapp and I, I think I had said the book should be called The Cartoon Moderns. Okay. Like that was what I, yeah. at the end of all this list, that's what I settled on. And then he said instead of The Cartoon Moderns, Cartoon Moderns. So what do you think defines, if you had six films up on a board and you had to pick which one was cartoon, modern, what defines that style against other things? Again, I, I think it's hard to say that. Okay. Um, you have to look at it in the context of the time. Yeah. And, and I think if you look at it with what was happening in animation at the time, it was about artists who were, as I said earlier, making a conscious effort to have deliberate design elements in their film help advance the story yeah. and, and help make it more cinematic through design. Okay. Today, if you come to a festival like Click, if you look at all the short film programs and all the student short programs, they're all designed in a million different ways, a million different techniques. Everybody has their own technique. Everybody has their own style. And... I think that was 
the goal of those artists back then was to open up the medium so something like that could happen. Because okay. there was no independent film at the time. There was experimental film, but there weren't. There was no animation festival because no. there weren't enough independent shorts being made. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, so it was a totally different time. And, and I think the legacy of Cartoon Modern was to allow filmmakers to express themselves in their own individual way, in their own individual style. Okay. So now when you look at new films, are you, are you defining it by if it looks similar to something within the 50s and 60s? Yeah. The contemporary Cartoon Modern program yeah. was films we chose that were directly influenced Okay. by that era okay. they used specific design elements that were popular in the 50s yeah. and they they revived them today yeah. that's how we kind of looked at the contemporary stuff okay. but almost everything you see today like it's stylized so is it cartoon modern no it's just animation today yeah. right animation became a much different art form after the 50s the independent animation movement started in the late 50s internationally. Annecy started in 1960. So Cartoon Modern is directly linked to the opening up of the animation. Aggressive animation, basically. Yeah. So what was your earliest memory? Why, why Cartoon Modern? Why did you start writing that book or getting interested in it? I started publishing a magazine when I was 18 okay. called Animation Blast. It was a print magazine. Yep. And my good fortune was to live in LA at the time and I could call up any of these old timers and, and go visit them and initially I was asking them about the classic Disney features the Warner Brothers shorts I was talking about those then I started interviewing some of those artists I realized had also worked later on in the, in the late 40s and 50s and they had done really interesting stuff and I, and I inadvertently started interviewing all these amazing legends of the cartoon modern era. Okay, yeah. we didn't even, there was no name for it. Yeah. But all these great designers, it was like Vic Habush, Bob McIntosh, Ed Benedict, Gene Hazelton, Ray Aragon. I was interviewing all these guys who were like the core people of the cartoon modern era. And uh, I think the idea formed for the book when I was working at Spumco. Yeah. Uh, I, w I would just have conversations with, with John Kay. He's, he's a big fan of this stuff, and he has a great appreciation for that work. And he was turning me on to new artists all the time, telling me about great designers. And so it was, it was just basically by luck, because okay. if I tried to do this five years later, a lot of those people that I interviewed were either too old or dead. Yes. Right? I mean, it was at the very last moment that you could have really done this book. Okay. With first-hand sources, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and it amazed me that nobody had really focused on it before. Like it was this treasure trove that was just waiting to be yeah. uh, discovered. Yeah, because it was so many different places; it was everywhere. Yeah, and even in America, like all the the independent studios that never, yeah, they died. They came up quickly. And they died quickly. And that, maybe that's because people just forgot. They were doing commercials and industrial films, and those are not really. Uh, vibrant especially not with as, an animation as, as, as holding up through time yeah. yeah I think now you see a lot more because the animation industry is so much bigger but at the time that no one was sitting down and going that's an amazing corporate film yeah for instance like, no nobody was looking nobody was doing it yeah. and, and like I say in, in uh, the beginnings of Cartoon Modern were out of World War 2 and, and military training films 
of course, those weren't even declassified until the 70s, yeah. right? So, yeah. 60s or 70s. So, those films weren't even really available to see. You know, it, still it, it took time. We destroyed it. Yeah, yeah. The, and a lot of them are gone missing now. So, you know, the, it was a tough era to document simply because the bulk of the experimentation was being done in ephemeral forms, mm. like commercials, industrial films, yeah. and training films. Which must have been frustrating as an artist. Yeah, and the reason they could experiment was because corporations and the military didn't care what the style was. <laughs> yeah. they, they didn't have to appeal to an audience. Yeah. Those films, the audience was there. It was soldiers that had to watch the films or employees at a company that had to watch a film. So they had a built-in audience. They didn't really have to Sell make... It. Yeah, they didn't have to make it entertaining because they, the audience was forced to watch those films. Yeah. It, was a, it was a really ideal, unique situation for experimenting. So when Cartoon Network came out, well, that was in the night. 92. 92. Yeah. And, and they started Powerpuff and Dexter's around 95, yeah. 96. So that was the real... 97. Yeah. Mid-90s was the revival the beginnings of the revival we still see it today yeah, yeah. I, I want to say like Gumball isn't influenced by Cartoon yeah. Modern but again it's the legacy of it there's where, something there that yeah. you go oh yeah you can it's not a conscious attempt to replicate like no, Dexter's no. Lab and Powerpuff were a conscious homage to the 50s yeah. Gumball isn't but it's it's diffused through that if anything, uh, it's, it's uh, relates, filter. It relates to Dexter, which then relates to Exactly. Exactly. So that must come at a good time for your book. Yeah, I was... Kind of coming was, back and... It was around me when, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. when I... I mean, I, I actually wasn't... I don't think those TV shows inspired me to do it, yeah, but, but but it was it was part of the culture. Yeah, you know? yeah, so yeah. I was aware of it. I enjoyed it. You know? And so, it meant when you went to a publisher, they went, oh, I get what you mean. Yeah. yeah. I'll tell you, like, um, when we went to the publisher... The Art of Monsters, Inc. Yeah. was the first art of book that Pixar had done through Chronicle Books. Okay. And when I saw that book, almost all the art in that book was like cartoon modern yeah. influenced. Yeah, yeah. Very, very direct. The film doesn't wasn't influenced by it, but the pre-production art was, right? And Chronicle published the book, and they also published Cartoon yeah, Modern. Yeah, yeah. And I told them, I told Chronicle, I said that book sold really well for you why don't you do a book about the original artists that inspired all those artists who did the pre-production for Monsters Inc and that was what sold the book because that was such a big seller for them that they were like well of course just linking it back you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, why, why, don't, why don't we give tribute to the actual people that originated yeah, yeah. the style and they weren't even aware that this was a style like that that you know they were being influenced by anybody so they were excited and, and I I'd, again a it was. I have to give a lot of credit to Alan Rapp. He was. Um, you need sometimes an editor who, who will just kind of go with it. Yeah. And and trust you. And, and he trusted this book. Whereas I don't think very few people would have. Yeah. And maybe I, before I, I never, I think I'd never, I'd never written a book before. <laughs> See, right. Yeah. So so I was like, you know, yeah. Yeah. So I think she's, she's That's cool. Thank you guys. very much, Ahmed. No, thank, thank you very much, man. So that was a media media talking to Tom Sanders there. And as mentioned before, you can uh, read probably a much more cogent uh, rebuttal to the Meryl Streep speech uh, over on Cartoon Brew, which, of course, everyone, I'm sure, knows Cartoon Brew. Mm-hmm. I think people who go on Squiggly, I can't imagine anyone going Cartoon Brew when listening to Squiggly. So I can't, I can't imagine yeah. 
God, what's this? It sort of needs no introduction, it, yeah. really. <laughs> Everyone who ha- who listens to this podcast would have that one bookmarked as well. So yeah, yeah. So yes, Meryl Streep. I hope you learned your lesson. Yeah, it is a shame when when anyone gets misrepresented, but especially when animators get misrepresented, or or people in the animation industry. Well, it's a risk you also take when you're a public figure and you make those kind of comments. Is you'll you'll have way more visibility if you get stuff wrong. So. Mm-hmm, sure. Anyway, I, I think a lot of people are sort of surprised actually at how many sort of animators reposted the the Meryl Streep speech in a kind of you go girl type way. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, yeah. But you know, if you're not presented with or don't know otherwise that something's not accurate, then I think in general people assume it is accurate, and then by the time people are saying actually no this is wrong this is wrong this is wrong they sort of lost interest they've moved on to the next buzzfeed article or whatever so yeah which is which is a shame poor old walt disney yeah well if meryl streep would like to uh defend her arguments on the squiggly podcast her people can get in touch with us uh in the usual channels and we'll we'll try and slot her in yeah come on you think we're pretty busy here but uh, we'll see what we can do <laughs> it's worth a shot <laughs> yeah, yeah, good, good. It's not the most effort I've ever put into a, a podcast acquisition, but they <laughs> <laughs> you can't say I didn't try. Anything else going on in the uh, the uh, the animation? Oh, it was Michael Spawn died. That was a it's a bummer. Yeah, that's a that's a, a shame. I mean, over over Christmas, um, uh, Harold Whittaker died as well. He was another another kind of teacher. In animation, I suppose, in a, in a way, but to see Michael Spawn die was, was uh, very very saddening. It's interesting when you—it's not a positive, really, but it's something to sort of take from. You realize just how respected certain people are, and um, if if you're not familiar with his website, it's it's still going. It's going to stay up, from what I gather from the most recent post. Uh, it's at his website, MichaelSpawnAnimation.com forward slash splog. I would dip into it every once in a while. And there's always, it's a real trove of, of musings on animation, lots of materials, lots of, uh, and he did it like, I think nearly every day. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty spectacular. And he knew this stuff. He, he had a very sort of consistent career and, and lots of very touching, um, posts by other bloggers and, uh, uh and journalists in the animation world. And, uh, you really got a sense that this was, uh, this was a big loss for the community. So, uh, yeah, check out the website, because uh, he did some very good work, and I think it's definitely worth remembering. Also, going back to Harold Whitaker, there's a uh, the first of, a, uh, I think, a two-part series of uh, a look back at his career and his work on the uh, Squiggly website. Uh, if you want to go check out squiggly.com, find out a little bit more about his work, <clears throat> a little bit more about his life and his career. Uh, have you got um, Time in for Animation, Ben? Yes. That's a great book, isn't it? That's uh, mm-hmm. That's Harold's book. Uh, himself and John Hallis put it together. He was basically, um, obviously, everyone knows John Hallis, the guy who um, did the first commercially released British feature film, yeah. uh, Animal Farm, uh, which Harold was quite a, a big part of. And you can find out an awful lot more in Jess Stewart's article uh, about about the man. But uh, Timing for Animation is still bought today. Lucky to have them sp- spread the knowledge when they did. It's obviously sad when anyone dies, and you know when it's an, an industry that we're a part of. I think sometimes it can hit a little close to home if people have done particularly good work. But I don't think anyone was as sad or as crestfallen or as beside themselves as I, as when they killed off Brian 
in Family Guy. Uh, it's too soon. I have, a, I have a quick question about that whole thing. How fucking stupid are people? <laughs> <laughs> it makes a nice article somewhere, you know, oh my God, Family Guy have killed off Brian. And it's, of course they've not killed off Brian. I mean, when you look at the rotor, I mean, they do release the rotor of the name of the of the episodes, upcoming episodes, and about six of them were called Brian and such and such, or the life of Brian, or this and Brian, and that and Brian. And it's like, are you thick? Here's the other thing, though. What if they did kill him, and they never brought him back? Who gives a sh**? <laughs> but it's, it's a show that never had any continuity. Yeah. So... Characters could die within episodes and just come back to life. Oh, yeah. It's a very flexible universe. So the idea of a character being killed off... Anyway. I saw that Paulie Walnuts played the new dog, so I watched a little bit of that. And uh, then the novelty of that wore off, so I uh, moved on to the next YouTube clip. What I find particularly heartbreaking about getting rid of Brian is how will Seth MacFarlane let the world continue to hear his beautiful singing voice? If the character that he funnels all his f***ing showboating through. It's pretty self-indulgent, isn't it? You know what I saw in Rise a couple months ago? A Seth MacFarlane musical album, like, without a Susan of irony. What? And you just want to put your arms around him and give him a cuddle and say, No, (laughs) that's not your calling. You, You never get that. You're cartoon dog guy. Now go back to work, but... But my voice is so... Go back to work. We have 15 more seasons to go. <laughs> Don't cry. Stop fucking crying! <laughs> he does have a beautiful voice. It's better than what I could probably do. Slightly better than what I could probably do. But it's... <laughs> I think you've laid down the gauntlet I, there. Well, Seth, if you fancy a, a, a sing-off, I'm quite happy to, 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 to sing off key. Very good. That was wordplay humour, the Thumpman. Oh, yes. Doesn't feel like a squiggly podcast without us talking for half an hour about The Simpsons. <laughs> What's happened in The Simpsons? There's been things that's happened in The Simpsons. Hey, you know there's new Simpsons Lego? Oh, that's the one. The Simpsons Lego. Good, next subject. So as everybody knows, the uh, the 86th Academy Award nominations have been revealed. Big fancy Hollywood blob of nonsense that happens once every year. It's award season. It is. It is. The glitz, the glamour, the bullshit. It's all there. <laughs> but obviously, we're not interested in, in all the sort of dresses and everything else like that. That, that, that. There seems to be a preoccupation. I mean, have you ever tried watching the Oscars? Speak for yourself. I can't wait to see what that charming Lena Dunham is going to come up with this year. <laughs> I think I think the best year for, for Oscar dresses for me. Do you remember when, uh, when Matt and Trey from uh, South Park dressed in uh, the year before, I think, Jennifer Lopez and uh, what's she called, Gwyneth Paltrow? You know, they hit headlines with their dresses. So the year after, I think I read somewhere that um, that Matt and Trey took a load of acid and went to the Oscars in dresses. <laughs> I, I do remember that story. I, I don't think they, they regard that as amongst their best work. I think that's one of the kinds of things that seems more sort of funny in the lead up. Yeah. And then, like, they had to sort of just sit there for the rest of the evening in dresses <laughs> after, like, the sort of the, the joke was, like, the going in, and then they actually have to sort of just kind of sit there high... <laughs> Looking fabulous, I'm sure. Well, well, that that goes without saying. 
But yes, amongst all that crackers nonsense is uh, the animators and the visual effects artists. and uh, Which everyone is tuning in for. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so if you like staying up until four o'clock in the morning... Uh, to see, just to see that the the best animated short and the best visual effects has been edited out of whatever broadcast, the, whatever UK broadcast you're looking at, it is frustrating, isn't it? But um, I've never given it a moment's thought. Really, nothing that remotely resembles frustration has ever stemmed from the visual effects awards being edited out of the Oscar broadcast. Uh, with- had I had I ever watched an Oscar broadcast all the way through? or regarded it as something more than just having on in the background, and I knew someone who had worked on a film and they were going to thank me in their speech, maybe (laughs) I'd lose a half second of sleep. You're just an ocean of calm. (laughs) (laughs) I'm this sort of twisted, pent-up, horrible sort of person. I could learn a lot from you, but I won't. You're not a horrible person. (laughs) Oh, thank you, Ben. I mean, you're twisted and pent-up, but in a charming way. You're like a sort of Bengal kitten. <laughs> With less hair. Okay, so who's up, Ben? Who's up for the Oscars this year? The 86th Academy Award nominees. Well, uh, not Monsters University. Ooh. And uh, not any uh, NFB films. Quite a few films that I think should have made the uh, the ticket. Yeah, that got me very pent up and twisted. <laughs> Just to see... To see that uh, the NFB were so... I'll say it, it's, it's quite a disgusting oversight, really, isn't it? Because it's a very strong year for them. Yeah, I, I think the ones that were sort of in the running when it was kind of shortlisted for the nomination, they were pretty intriguing films and they were pretty uh, advanced, interesting new takes on processes. There was um, Hollowland, which had a lovely... It was stop motion, but using kind of a 2D process for it. And... Uh, uh, we had uh, Chris Landreth on the podcast not that long ago talking about his film, and that's sort of exceptional. You never really sort of know what's going to lead to what. Like a film that wins the big prize at Annecy might not get a nomination, and then a film that doesn't get into Annecy at all does get a nomination, you know, or vice versa, or completely unpredictable. Some might say the whole thing's just kind of nonsense. I mean, what I keep sort of telling myself when it comes to the Oscars is, Al Pacino didn't get anything for any time he played Michael Corleone, but he won for Scent of a Woman. <laughs> what the hell is that about, you know? Yeah. Whoopi Goldberg has an Oscar. <laughs> Let that sink in. Yeah. So good luck to those who did get nominated. Again, I, th- I think that for the, to the general public, this is the, the only real issue, is that to the general public, the Oscars is like the defining thing about what is good in film. Mm-hmm. And really, I think for the most part, what it, it that means is what is good in mainstream accessible film. And, um, you know, occasionally they'll give attention to films that are more independent or films that are outside of the Hollywood world or films that make you think a bit more that are more than just popcorn films. But eh, not necessarily. That's certainly not one of their rules. That being said, the films that did get nominated are perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. I saw The Crudes... Believe it or not, yeah, it was watchable. I wouldn't have said Oscar nomination worthy, to be perfectly honest, but it was an entertaining family popcorn film. Uh, certainly not the best of the year, but I've definitely seen far, far worse. Nicolas Cage put in a fabulous performance as a rock 
<laughs> Despicable Me too. I heard lots of good things about Frozen. Obviously, everyone was raving about that this year or the last couple months. I haven't seen Ernest and Celestine. I saw the trailer for it. I can't really judge a film based on that. And I'm fairly confident The Wind Rises is sort of outside of my particular genre interests. But um, those are the ones that are up for it. Yeah. Which one of those uh, five do you think should win? Oh, do I think should win? Uh, there's two different questions, isn't there? There's Do I think should win or who's going to win? And who's going to win? Well, I, I only asked should win. Yeah, yeah. But this is the, the way people approach so it. So prioritise my question. Your question. Who do I think should win? Then way, 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 way underneath is everyone else's question. All right. Okie doke. <laughs> Probably f- Frozen. Yeah. Frozen. It was nice. It was good. Um, I mean, I've seen a few of them on there. I'm ashamed to say that I haven't seen The Wind Rises, and I'm ashamed to say I haven't seen Ernest and Celestine, even though I had the opportunity to see it at Annecy. Which one of them was at Annecy? Uh, Ernest and uh, Celestine. Okay. Yeah. I haven't seen The Crudes. I've seen Despicable Me 2, which, for my money shouldn't really be on the list I'll, I'll just say that I don't think it should be on the list I mean if we're going for a kind of animated popcorn-y blockbuster I think that Cloud with a Chance of Meatballs 2 was a much better film than Despicable Me 2 but that's like personal preference mm-hmm. I mean wh- what was the crudes like? It was fine it was a little uncomfortable I remember I, a couple of podcasts ago I think we actually talked about it for a while and then I just cut it all out because it was like it was one of those like three hour podcasts mm-hmm. And it wasn't really that relevant, and it was kind of rambly. But the condensed version was, had some good adventure bits in it, had some good, you know, action. It had some real nice visual inventiveness with these kind of made-up creatures and this sort of, like, uh, missing link period. So all the other kind of animals are these kind of, like, hybrid animals. Mm-hmm. Birds that are actually, like, sort of flying piranhas that will, you know, skeletonize big flying dinosaur things in a matter of seconds. Stuff that you could tell they had some fun coming up with, you know, ideas. And that's the kind of stuff that I think I got the most out of it, was the kind of stuff that from looking at the concept art and from discussing it with you a couple of months ago, I think is way more a big part of Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs too. Yes. Um, all those crazy animals that are sort of like food animals. Yeah. I thought that the main character was a little unsettling. She was this kind of like coming of age feisty redhead and for some reason they framed an awful lot of shots when she was climbing up cliffs to sort of like peer directly up her skirt and she does a lot of like because she's kind of like a cave woman does a lot of kind of like feral scavenging around with her ass in the air it seems like as you what you're going through there it seems to have this kind of like visual inventiveness and as i said cloudy the chance of meatballs too continued its kind of inventiveness with the uh, food emuls and, and the puns and things but Despicable Me Too I saw it and it was it was very very lacklustre and disappointing and quite kind of boring I was quite bored by it obviously I'm not the you know a, a guy pushing the 30s hardly the audience um, well, I don't know if you're representative of the average guy pushing 30. Oh. Given given how much we're sort of invested in a magazine that focuses on f***ing cartoons. Right, okay. I think we're not exactly, you know, we're not the sort of like lager-swilling, football-going jock types, really, are we? Not really. We, we prefer whiskey. <laughs> exactly. We're more refined. A night of whiskey and Spongebob. Yeah, <laughs> that'll do. Don't all try and f*** us at once, ladies. <laughs> Form a queue. The thing that uh, my brother, of all people, who's not really into animation that much, 
described a hugely successful element of the Despicable Me franchise, the Minions, perfectly to me. And that's that they're basically the crazy frog. Oh, right, okay. Do you remember the crazy frog? And I think you could probably chart the downfall of society to how the Minions have been uh, received by audiences and applauded and how the crazy frog was just kind of hated from mm. <laughs> from his creation up until this day. So they're that bad? Are they that bad? I really, I haven't actually seen the films. It's like that they're just there to fill screen time and right. to sort of run up to the, they're getting their own movie. They well, sell dolls as well. Exactly. exactly. It's like those uh, rabbit things in, in Rayman. Yeah. Yeah. The rabbits. Yeah. I just don't get it. That's, I, I just don't get their appeal. God, I just had a, a flashback actually to the crazy frog. Cause that started as like an ad for, I think, a ringtone company. That's right, yeah. It was a ringtone. I think it was some guy who just made a sort of animation for, like, uh, for giggles with a friend of his. Mm-hmm. And then was able to kind of sell it to this ringtone company. And um, it was one of those ads that for a long time was only on, like, daytime TV cable channels. It wasn't that sort of scene the first sort of month or so. And I saw this ad, and I was on my own, and uh, I was still living with my uh, my dad at the time. I was still in school. I was trying to explain to my, my dad and my sister, there's this ad on TV. It's a frog in a biker helmet, and he's got his c*** out. <laughs> and they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, I... And trying to try try to explain it to someone who hasn't seen it. Well, it's like he's tr- he's sort of like revving up a motorbike, and he's like you know you know kicking the kickstand, but his his dick and balls are out. Like, and they're looking at me like they want to have me committed. Like what the? F- and I swear to Christ, that advert never came on when they were watching TV. And as soon as one of them would leave the room, fucking crazy frog would appear. I mean that frog. Come back! Uh, they'd come back in and it had just finished. So did you sort of think like, he was a figment of your imagination? Ben, we know you want to see frog cock, but this is getting to be a problem. Anyway, finally, they they saw the ad, but at that point, other people, I guess, had seen the ad and had, like, complained, so they, like, bled out the cock. Ah. Uh. So th- then my frog cock sightings to my family seemed like wishful thinking. <laughs> crazy frog <laughs> well maybe that's why it's called the crazy frog because uh 10 years it took to mend that riff <laughs> well the best thing was that uh the ringtone was so fun and playful it never got old <laughs> such a shame that uh, we don't see it around so much these days have you seen frozen no no oh. you're like the only person on the planet that hasn't seen frozen well, of of certain circles. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's it's there is a sort of limited number of people who you can go see a new Disney film with yeah. in the cinemas if you're even inclined to. And to be honest, when I was away, when it was doing its sort of big cinema run, and all the people I was with when I was away, a sort of older friends from a, a sort of pre-cartoon time in my life, and generally, if we're going to go see a film. It's kind of hard to sell them on one with a singing snowman, <laughs> which I I maintain is very cynical of them. But uh, they're sort of more into the whole like going out to bars and getting drunk and their own arrested development. Selfish bastards. Yeah, but uh, I've heard largely good things. As in, the worst thing I've heard was sort of mild indifference toward it. No one's said it was a bad film. Yeah. So it's good. 
I enjoyed it. The, the, the story is quite kind of Disney formula, but with a few nice surprises in there. Its achievement really is technical. The snow, the, the ice, the effects really do do work really well in the film. And, the, you know, it's something that we've never seen before. And so what I'm saying is that, you know, if, if the Academy Award, as it is supposed to be, is an achievement, uh, then Frozen's technical achievements are what puts it, you know, above above everything else. But saying that, um, Ernest and Celestine, it, it's a watercolour film, but there was quite a few advancements in, in kind of creating this, this watercolour style, this 2D watercolour style. I think it was Katie, one of the one of the writers, who went to a, a, a talk on it in Annecy, and she said it was fascinating the way that they engineered these kind of drops of, uh, of, of or splashes of watercolour colour mm-hmm. uh, so they would work in a kind of 2D setting. Right. So yeah, it's uh, it's it's an exciting category, really, especially with the absence of Pixar as well. Uh, obviously, Monsters University not getting in caused a little bit of a uh, a grumble amongst the uh, amongst the Pixar faithful. Hmm. But uh, it, you know, it, it leaves the door open for somebody else, I would say, doesn't it? Yeah, I guess so. Whether that somebody else should have been the Crudes is is more the issue, I think, than than Monsters University not actually being up for consideration. Like you said before, I think there are other films, if that door is open, that could have filled that slot. Who will win for animated short? Well, according to our poll, uh, who should win is Feral. Feral is doing extremely well. At the time of recording, it's got nearly half the votes. Mm-hmm. So, looking good. And that is a that is a pretty beautiful film, I must say. Yeah. Fortunately... We actually have an interview with Daniel Sousa. The timing worked out rather well. We were able to uh, uh, present it to you for this episode of the podcast. Why don't we hand it over to him to talk firsthand about making Feral. Feral's been out there, so I guess you said it's coming to the end of the run, so that's been, what, like two years-ish? Yeah, uh, I finished it around uh, May 2012. Mm-hmm. I still need to apply to Hiroshima because that was kind of, a, you know, it's every two years, so... When I finished it, I didn't quite have enough time to apply. It was just happening then, so that, so that's happening again uh, this summer. If it gets in, that'll be probably the last festival it plays in. And so overall, how long would you say it took to put the film together? Yeah, that, that's that's always a question. It's it's hard to quantify because it, you know it wasn't like a legitimate production, if you will. Um, you know, I did it in my free time. I started thinking about it about five years ago, and whenever I had a pocket of time, weekends, times between other commercial jobs, I had a week here, a week there, I would work on it. So, you know, on and off for about five years, um, if I had to put it all end-to-end in hindsight, um, without all the tangents that I went off on and and all the, the dead ends, it probably would have taken about a year and a half to work on. I was also working by myself for the most part. Uh, towards the end, I was able to get a little bit of help from uh, uh, some students uh, of mine from different schools uh, in the New England area. So for the last couple of summers, I rented out some space and had students help me with uh, tracing and scanning, doing some compositing, uh, even a couple of animation shots and uh, background paintings. So that, that helped a lot. But, you know, to put things in perspective as well, once it had some momentum going and I knew where the film was going and, and I was confident about what I wanted, I did a residency at McDowell Colony. It was a five-week residency, and I pretty much finished the entire third act of the film in five weeks. So, you know, 
time kind of stretched and compressed in weird ways during the whole process. Yeah. One of the things about watching short films as an animation freelancer, after you've seen it and then you've taken in the story, a really successful film makes you want to see it again and sort of analyze it or want to sort of really deconstruct it on a technical level. And I, I feel that Feral is... is it's so well layered and, and blended. And could you maybe talk through a little bit of the process of how you got to achieve that overall look? The look, yeah. Um, I mean, uh, I should start by, by completely agreeing with you that the successful ones have a, a lot of other things going on. You can experience it over and over again and get something out of them every time you see it. Uh, and that's definitely the way that I try to approach the films, too. Uh, there are things in them that, that even I don't understand that I feel like, oh, I need to put that in. I don't know why exactly, but I know that it needs to be there. And sometimes it's only after I've finished that I realize what the reason was. And a, a lot of that is, is kind of uh, intuitive. As far as the, the look is concerned, that's something that evolved over time. I come from uh, kind of a painting background. I, I studied painting in school, and uh, animation was kind of a secondary thing. And I've always wanted to kind of achieve that kind of painted look in, in motion, and it's always very difficult to do that. Not just because it's time-consuming, but also sometimes it ends up feeling a little forced. So I, I did a lot of experimentation with different techniques by uh, actually painting every frame. And, and uh, one of the short films that I made in preparation for, for Feral called Drift was actually all hand-painted. And it took way too long and I don't think was as successful. Uh, and didn't achieve quite what I wanted. But the film is 13 minutes long. There's probably another 13 minutes of footage that I didn't use of just tests and different character designs that didn't didn't quite work, and even complete scenes that I dropped. So I I did a lot of experimentation from hand-painting to drawing to using some kind of Photoshop filter. And eventually the process that ended up working that, that kind of struck a good balance between having the right look, but also being efficient and something that I could finish, was something that I've kind of blogged about as well, but the process essentially is uh, doing all the animation in Flash, hand-drawing in Flash with a tablet, because I like the immediacy of of working in Flash. Um, You can see right away what you get. You can work with sound. You can put it in your edit and see how it's going. But the thing that always turned me off about Flash is the way it looks. So uh, what I ended up doing was just printing each one of the rough drawings on paper, very lightly, and then tracing it in pencil. And uh, I was working with masks, so I would trace these silhouette shapes. And all I had to trace was really the edge. I didn't have to fill it in. Uh, I just had to trace the edge so it had that kind of hand-made, painterly feel to it. And then bring it back into the computer, scan that drawing in, and fill it in with the shape that I got from Flash. So now I had these black silhouette shapes, masks, that I would fill in with painted textures that I scanned separately, just acrylic on paper. So I would have a pass for the silhouette of the characters and then a pass for the shadows and composite everything in effect. So, it, you know, it was a little time-consuming, just the full tracing aspect of it and, you know, lots of calloused fingers. And <laughs> But but I, I think it's worth it in the end. I, I tried so many different ways to, to try to get that same look by, by using shortcuts, and it just never worked out. So... Only by doing doing it by hand was the only way to go. Yeah. Well, I like that uh, in looking at some of your prior work as well, each film has a kind of uh, extra layer, layer of effort that's sort of gone into it. 
I was looking at your, I think, first film, Minotaur. Uh-huh. I, I'm a sort of fan of that kind of replacement cutter animation look. It contributes to the atmosphere of the film in a way that, you know, you can't really replicate digitally. Yeah, I think that's that's probably maybe a philosophy or a work ethic that I inherited from working at Olive Jar, which was a studio that uh, was known for doing a lot of mixed media. And this was before people were working in computers too much, so we did a lot of hand-drawn stuff, you know, shooting stuff on Oxberries. Um, we mixed it with live action, mixed it with stop motion. And I just loved that aspect of it, of, of, of kind of not knowing exactly where it's going to end up, but just experimenting with techniques until you find something that works for you. And animation has so much potential. You know, it hasn't been around for that long as an art form. So there's a lot that can still be explored. And a lot of people just don't explore it. They, they just adopt the, the traditional, you know, methods of light box, draw on paper, trace it on cell, or do it on the computer or do it in CGI. Like, there's all these kind of pre-established methodologies, um, which I find really kind of boring. Uh, and to me, the, the, there needs to be something exciting about the process itself, some, something kind of a, a sense of discovery. Without that, I don't think I could survive a whole production. So I like playing around with different methods and finding the right one for, for that specific project. You know, so in the case of Minotaur, that was a stop motion, essentially. Uh, it was in a stop motion set uh, with objects, but the characters were all flat on cardboard, and they had been uh, hand-drawn on a, a light table previously, and then they were all cut out and mounted on, on pieces of rigid board and placed inside of the stop motion set. And that was so much fun to do. The, the best part of that for me was actually the lighting. I loved lighting the sets uh, because it felt like painting to me. Uh, I hadn't done stop motion before, so that was kind of a, a brand new thing. And, and it really felt like painting with light and moving the lights around and, and playing with warm and cool uh, uh, color palettes and, and leading the eye of the audience to a certain part of the screen and then leading it away. The whole thing was just discovering. This, for me, it was just discovering a, a, a world and the prior work you did before Feral has a kind of like fairy tale mythological quality to it almost, and whereas Feral seems more like it takes place in the real world, but it uses a kind of fantasy element in terms of the psychology of the kid. But even still, it has this almost sort of, for lack of a, a better term, folk tale quality to it. Uh, was it an original story? It is an original story, but it started as, as um, a retelling of the Caspar Hauser story, which is a very known story. It's been told uh, before Werner Herzog made a wonderful film about it. And in the case of Caspar Hauser, it's really it's not so much a feral child, but a, a boy who was locked up in a basement for all of his uh, infancy and had no human contact until he was a teenager. That's what I started with, but it gradually changed into something else as I started doing research of other feral children, uh, like The Boy of Aviron, the, the famous uh, film by Truffaut, The Wild Child, which is really beautiful as well. But there's lots of accounts throughout history of uh, feral children, and I loved how, in some accounts, the stories are so fantastical that they started to feel like fairy tales or magical realism. And even in some mythology like the, the, the origin of Rome uh, and, and the two twins, even the story of, of uh, Gilgamesh and Enkidu, lots of creation myths explore this idea of, of the feral child or, or the feral man uh, and the duality between the feral man and, and the kind of the person who has been 
influenced by society and culture. And that's really the dichotomy that I wanted to explore, that this kind of duality between the human being and the, the, the animal being, and what separates us from the animal world. And those are the sorts of things that I've been exploring in other films too, and then Fable and Minotaur. It's like the, the Minotaur is a half man, half animal. So the themes are similar, you know, the, it's still in the same uh, kind of ballpark. But in this case, yeah, it, it, it isn't strictly a fairy tale, although it has aspects of that. And the other thing I wanted to explore is this idea of how we think about childhood, how we kind of mythologize the idea of childhood as either something that is almost angelic and beautiful, and, you know, the childhood who is not, um, hasn't been contaminated by evil ideas and is pristine. Uh, but then at the same time, the feral child is also kind of demonic. Uh, because it's led by its drives and instincts and it does not empathize with other creatures, it does not have love, and it's just driven by, you know, hunger or, you know, the need for shelter. So I love that that those two worlds can coexist in the same being. That, that was one of the ideas, too, that I wanted to, to think about. Mm-hmm. I guess because the audience were not given, like, a sort of comprehensive backstory as to how this child came to you know, live amongst uh, wolves in the woods. And in putting the story together, did you create one for yourself, or was it always left kind of open? It was left open, because even I didn't want to really think of the child as necessarily a human child. It could be seen as almost a fairy, or almost as a will-o'-the-wisp, or something that is incomprehensible, that the humans see it as a human, that maybe the wolves don't see it as a human, maybe the wolves see it as, as a wolf. And the child itself, how does it see itself? Um, I, I didn't want it to be too uh, literal. Yeah. Well, there are definitely uh, certain sort of parts of it that could be interpreted different ways. Like I, one of my favorite shots is having the wood grain kind of take over his arm. Yeah. And then, as, and that could either be a sort of a literal thing that could happen or possibly a coping mechanism to make himself disappear. And so... Yeah, people could take you know different their own thing from it. That's another nice thing about films is if they if there's more than sort of one thing you can get from them. And that's the other nice thing about animation too, is especially the making of animation is it takes so long to do that you get to think about a lot of things as you're making it, and it's a uh, um, kind of meditation. Hmm. So I put a lot of ideas into it that may not be immediately clear, and that's why you know repeat viewings maybe can resurface some of these ideas. But for instance, that what you spoke of the, the, the kind of the wood grain scene was this idea that it's almost like you know when a cat is born, when 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 a giraffe is born, within an hour they're walking around and they know how to be a cat, they know how to be a giraffe, and a human being needs to be taught everything. They don't come ready-made. They don't have these built-in instincts. They need to learn by observation. And they learn basically by imitating, by uh, whatever environment they're surrounded by, that's what they become. There's a mimetic quality to our intelligence. That's how we evolve throughout childhood. So this idea was that when the child is exposed to wolves, it becomes a wolf. When it's exposed to human beings, it becomes a human being. When it's surrounded by a wooden cage, it becomes wood. So th- that was the idea behind that. Hmm. Uh, the film is now online, I think, this month, and you've gone the, the Vimeo on-demand route. Yeah. It seems like a nice idea for short filmmakers, A, to sort of get films out there, but also as a potential to sort of generate revenue. Do you see that kind of thing as indicative of the way things are going to go? 
I don't know. I mean, I'm a really bad gauge on, <laughs> when it comes to knowing what other people are thinking. And, and uh, I'm kind of in my own world as a little hermit. But um, it would be nice. Um, I mean, my wife and I don't really watch anything on TV anymore. We watch everything online on demand. The fact that we don't need to watch commercials and we can access exactly what we need when we need it, I think, is the way to go. But I didn't want to put it online right away because it wasn't made to be seen online. When I think of making a film, it, I, I'm taking into consideration the scale of the screen. And there's certain things that, that, that need to be seen at a certain size. I need to be seen in a dark room and you need to be immersed and devoted to or committed to spending the next, you know, 13 minutes watching a film uh, in order to appreciate the, the full experience. So I wanted to make sure that it had its run in, theatrically before putting it online. And then people who didn't have the opportunity to, to see it that way can now see it. So yeah, there's a little bit of revenue. It's 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 not much. It's uh, but I think it's great that Vimeo offers that ability for filmmakers to do it kind of directly without having to go through, you know, a third party or a distributor. Yeah, it's a. I think it's a great thing. And there's some other great films on there too. So excellent. Wise words there from Oscar hopeful Daniel Souza, the director of Feral. Great interview. Uh, we've talked about it uh, quite a few times, I think, on the podcast. It's, I think it started doing the rounds just over a year ago. I think I saw it the first time at not this past Encounters, but the one before. Ah, right. And, uh, yeah, very nice, very nice piece of work. I think the first time I saw it was, uh, was Annecy, and we discussed it on, I think it's Podcast 14 with, with Aiden from the Flipped Animation Podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a segment there where we discuss all the films, and I think we just piled the praise on Feral. It's such a gorgeous film definitely and uh well there's that disney film that uh, we also chatted about on a recent podcast uh, get a horse mm -hmm. now that was sort of packaged with frozen right in cinemas yes yeah so everyone who's seen frozen has seen that film that's right yeah so yeah we got an interview with the director and uh the head animator guy, mm. uh, Eric Goldberg, and uh, and Lauren McMullen was the director. That's a few episodes back. Go get it. <laughs> Mr. Hublot and Possessions I'm not familiar with. And uh, Room on the Broom I've seen a few times. Uh, we talked to the producer. That squiggly touch mm -hmm. in action again. <laughs> Except in the case of the NFB films. We do actually have interviews of all the NFB films that were shortlisted but didn't make the final nomination. I think they're all great films. If you haven't had a chance to watch them yet, track them down. That's uh, Subconscious Password by Chris Landreth and uh, Gloria Victoria by Theodore Ushev. We have an interview and a video interview on an installation he did up on Squiggly. And uh, also Michel Crano, the director or the co-director of Hollowland. And those three films, I think, are worth further acknowledgement yes i agree then they're certainly winning prizes left and right and and all over the place like they have life in them yes they're getting their respect i think it's just sort of a nice cherry on top to actually get one of these little uh statues you know yeah uh, that's that's all they are really is, is a little pat on the head isn't it a little little cherry on top i mean at the end of the day we see them for what they are and they are you know wonderful films and they are kind of advancing the kind of the, the art form and, and doing a great job, especially the uh, the NFB films that we just mentioned. Have you seen Have you seen the visual effects? Have you seen any of them films? No, actually, I haven't seen any of them, and I really wanted to see Gravity. Gravity is really is a really good film, but it's kind of like um, a Mr. Magoo short 
but he knows what's happening to him. <laughs> so all these, she just keeps walking into all these disasters and it just keeps getting worse and worse every time she goes somewhere. Mm. And, and it's just a calamity after calamity. It's breathtaking. And obviously, the only thing that's real in there is the faces. I would say that's probably not obvious to most. I think that a lot of people probably at least thought that they were sort of in suits against sort of a green screen kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And there was that one journalist, I'm still not sure if it's a joke, but that one journalist at the press junket who asked what it was like filming in space. <laughs> Very good. Not for that person, I think, or their family. Yeah. I think there was a dark night of the soul for all concerned. <laughs> what fucking idiocy have we brought into the world? <laughs> Not good, not good at all. <laughs> and then obviously, oh, the other the other three nominees are Iron Man three, the Lone Ranger, uh, which bombed, didn't it? I didn't see the Lone Ranger. I'm, I'm part of its. I'm responsible, partly responsible for it bombing, uh, and Star Trek Into Darkness. Mm. Yeah, not really a, a Star Trek guy. No, I I wasn't until the films. I do enjoy the the films. I think they're a, you know. What the new ones or the the newer ones? Right. Yeah, but I. I, I can't I can't get into the series and the, the the old films. Yeah, it's a hard one I think to sort of get into if you weren't there at the time. I'm not saying that I do like I do like watching is it Generations where William Shatner and uh, Patrick Stewart their two sort of captains meet, mm-hmm. um, and that's just good because just William Shatner. <laughs> Shatner is kind of uh, yeah. I am a Shatner fan. You know, but I'm yeah. I'm way more than that. Like I'm I'm also like a Mark Hamill fan, but I wouldn't watch a Star Wars. Some people they just you sort of see them enough, and you kind of get enough of the character they played to get all the references in a kind of way. And Shatner's just kind of this ridiculous god amongst men. Like he's he's you can't not love that guy. Yeah. But uh, I don't think I've ever watched an actual Star Trek all the way through, like with him as the captain. I had a rather chilling conversation with my girlfriend the other day. She she tells me there's a girl where she works and her boyfriend, this girl's boyfriend, is making her watch all the Star Treks. I guess because she, like you, likes the new films but isn't really a fan of the old show and he's a big Star Trek fan, so he's like, yeah, 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 you have to watch all these, the old episodes. And so she's begrudgingly going along with it, right? Mm. So my girlfriend tells me this story and then she goes to me balefully, are you going to do that with me in The Sopranos? <laughs> it's a bit fucking different. <laughs> you know, one is sort of associated with, you know, being a bit socially backward, as hugely popular as it is. The other is kind of considered the TV equivalent of the great American novel. <laughs> uh, we're incredibly lucky in that respect. I've just started watching Breaking Bad and going through that. Uh, and I've, mm-hmm. I've, I've yet to uh, inflict Doctor Who on uh, <laughs> on my better half, but uh, I'll, uh, I'll uh, one day. But you're begrudgingly going on with with getting one of the most highly regarded TV shows of the last five years inflicted on yourself. Uh, actually, I already know a lot about Doctor Who. Oh, you're talking about Breaking Bad? Ha ha ha! Ah, you zigged when I thought you were going to zag. <laughs> you never know what's going to happen on this crazy podcast. Hey, Gary. <laughs> So that's the Oscars far away in uh, in Hollywood then. Uh, but closer to home, obviously we've got the the BAFTA nominations that have been that have been announced as well. This one, Pixar have been nominated for for Monsters University alongside Frozen and uh, Despicable Me Too. 
And best short animation is between I Am Tom Moody by Ainsley Henderson, Sleeping with the Fishes by Yusuf Al Khalifa, and Everything I Can See From Here by The Lion. Mm-hmm. I think that's a quite a strong, strong category, best animated short, uh, best short animation rather. I've seen a couple of those. I'm very glad to see I Am Tom Moody on there. Yeah. And again, I think that was, I think the first time I saw that one was at the same encounters that I saw Feral, and you just got a nice sort of sense of what it was trying to say. It wasn't being like maudlin, it was being quite good humoured. Because I think people who have like issues with self-esteem or self-confidence, it's sort of coupled with, sometimes it's sort of coupled with a real urge to be loved. It's not so much that they're not being appreciated or they, they don't feel like they should be appreciated. It's more that they're waiting to have their day. And so when you work in an industry like this, you come across a lot of people who have this kind of like, like super humble attitude. And then the moment there's a sort of sliver of, of validation, they do this complete 180 and become like quite arrogant. And it's, it's a shame because it, if you base sort of your affection for someone on what you thought was who they actually are, and then that turns out to be sort of this kind of BS thing they were putting up. That's a real pisser. But hopefully, I think for the most part, in, in animation, I think more people tend to sort of be in the this category, which is genuinely critical of oneself, genuinely doubting oneself, and uh, it's that kind of facing fears element of, of taking the plunge, mm-hmm. regardless of how what you do is accepted or responded to. It's the doing of it that is the major achievement, yes. rather than the uh, the being accoladed for it. And I thought that that the story of that was quite touching. Mm-hmm. It's that old expression that courage isn't the absence of fear. Oh, that's that's very touching, Ben. Yeah, yeah, I do like to touch. The, the other good thing about uh, I am Tom Moody uh, is that it, it doesn't waste the fact that it's an animation. It doesn't waste the opportunity to present this tale in 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 such a kind of stylized way. Uh, so yeah, it does need to be kind of applauded for that as well. Mm-hmm. Have you seen Sleeping with the Fishes? No. It looks very uh, appealing visual wise. Uh, the the kind of the images and uh, I think I've seen a trailer for it as well. It does look quite good. Yeah, I'm always glad to see the NFTs getting nods. Yeah, I, I've said it. I've said it many times before, and I think we're on the same page. I, I think they do very good work. Yeah, I just I like their attitude. They're a great school. They let the students excel, don't they? They're, they're they're a good platform for somebody if you've already got the talent to showcase it a little more. So yeah, I uh, I'm a big fan of the NFTs. Mm-hmm. You've seen everything I can see from here. Yeah, I think we've talked about that one as well. Yeah. Very uh, nice use of colour, sort of flipped aspect ratio. Did you see, that? Did you see? I think it was called Barflies, it was released not so long back, and it's about a minute or two long, um, and it's just observations of different uh, bar cultures and, 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 and people that hang around in these bars. It just keeps switching between, between them, and that's in a kind of weird aspect ratio as well. It's just basically in a square but mm. uh, yeah, the animation in that. It, when you when you look at that, you do realise that they are they are fantastic at, at kind of animating for a start, and uh, also fantastic at kind of setting a scene. Uh, so yeah, best animated animated feature. We've got Frozen, Despicable Me Two, and Monsters University. Uh, I think the interesting thing about this is that historically, I think I mentioned this last year. 
every single film that has won the BAFTA uh, for Best Animated Feature always goes on to win the Oscar, hmm. which I think it's only been going on since 2001. But still, that's quite a quite a long streak, isn't it? I assume that the way that films perform at other award ceremonies and things could definitely play a part, or maybe it's just sort of similar ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. That wouldn't surprise me. And uh, best VFX, same ones, except uh, with the addition of Pacific Rim. Mm. Did you see that one? Yeah, I've seen Pacific Rim. I like Guillermo del Toro, but I, that film was just rock'em, sock'em robots. It wasn't even that good. <laughs> I, everyone everyone applauded it. Everyone went mental. They're like, oh, it's, it's great. It is, it's brilliant. It's got robots and they fight dinosaurs and it is good. It's basically the Power Rangers <sighs> with a budget. Too much money. Seriously. And, but every time the cast spoke... <laughs> yeah, they shouldn't have been doing that. That was not... <laughs> well, this is it. I mean, if you're going to do a film, an, an unashamed film about robots, giant robots punching dinosaur dragon monsters from another dimension then don't try and reel us in with you know some crap story uh, story (laughs) exactly i mean if if you if you sell character development but if you're if you (laughs) if you're selling a film on the basis that it's just robots fighting dinosaurs don't get us into the theater and then give us this half-assed attempt at drama I didn't get it. Maybe that's, that's my fault. I didn't get it. I liked that it was set in a future so dystopian and chaotic that you couldn't tell what anyone's accent was supposed to be. <laughs> well, that explains it now. <laughs> the Pacific Rim not getting the bulk of the votes in our little online poll, but uh, I'm sure people enjoyed it. I actually, there's an interview with Guillermo del Toro I listened to not that long ago, and, and that made me like the spirit of the film a lot more because of just how much ridiculous fun he had making it. I could see being in those shoes and having a blast, you know? And I kind of like Charlie Day in anything. He's a bit shrill, but, like, he has his moments. Mm. I'm, I'm an always sunny guy. I didn't realize he was one of the voices in Monsters U until recently. Who's he play? And actually, he kind of annoyed me in that. <laughs> Who does he play? He's the, uh, the, the sort of purple one that's kind of just, like, a U... Like two legs. Oh, art. With eyes. I think so. Very high voice, which is just the way he speaks. But. So, yeah, that's that's the BAFTAs. Yeah, well, uh, who are you rooting for of those lot then? I mean, it's not that much different, really, is it? Well, uh, the only difference, really, is the best short animation. Um, it would be nice to see, to see Monsters University win best animated feature, if only to stick a kind of Oscar prediction spanner in the works. Mm-hmm. Uh, but obviously it's probably going to go to to Frozen. God knows why Despicable Me's been nominated again. Best short animation. I am Tom Moody. Yeah, I am Tom Moody. It is a great film. I'd like to see it win. What about yourself? Ah, uh, same. I th- well, I've only seen Monsters Uni of those three, so mm-hmm. it would sort of have to be <laughs> the only sort of like opinion. I, I mean, technically, of the ones I've seen, that's the worst one as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and best short, yeah, Ditto. I'm Tom Moody. And I haven't seen any of the... Well, no, I've only seen Pacific Rim of the VFX film. So based on that, I want Gravity to win. <laughs> yeah. So all these glitzy, glamorous award ceremonies that, that celebrate the whole of film are going on. Obviously, it's award season and, and everything else. 
Uh, but there's another award ceremony then that, uh, that celebrates just animation. And just British animation as well. How about that? Well, the British Animation Awards, the finalists for those have been announced as well. And uh, this one is a little uh, little more varied, I would say. Mm-hmm. I guess because of the uh, the parameters of the selection process. but And also there's a lot more categories and things to pick from. So there's a lot more kind of... Uh, it's way more of a celebration, I think, of, of what uh, the UK is contributing to animation these days. And it also shows that, that, you know, it demonstrates rather that animation is a an all-encompassing medium. It's, you know, it, it, if you can fill an award show with animation in all kinds of different categories and British animation at that, you know, it just shows what a, what a strong position animation is and, and British animation is. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, uh, it's good to see all these. Definitely. Well, uh, shall we, uh, shall we have a little look-see? Let's have a little gander. Uh-huh. Best voice performance. Uh, it's, uh, between Ben and Holly's Little Kingdom and that's, uh, Moina Banks. That's a, uh, Ashley Baker Davis production. The Hungry Corpse by Beakus, and that's Bill Nye that's up for the uh, award there. And uh, Tim Dan, uh, CITV's Compost Corner. Uh, so yeah, some, some... Have you seen The Hungry Corpse? Yeah, I quite liked it. Yeah, good film. Yeah, nice. I'm surprised I haven't sort of seen it more out there, but I do like it. A really, really nice look to it, nice tone to it. The kind of film I would have really loved sort of back in my BA days. Mm-hmm. It, it reminded me of old Ben corpses and talking pigeons and things like that yeah well the thing i like about it is that he's a he's a hungry corpse which is basically a zombie isn't he really it's not like a zombie film it's it's something more kind of it's more about sort of friendship and loneliness and yeah yeah it's it's more poetic it's it's you know it's a it's a great film uh, and mm-hmm. Bill Nye does a great performance it's obviously what we're we're looking at there the voice performance compost corner that's fun that's just basically about farting snails. <laughs> <laughs> it's just kids' stuff, uh, but still really fun. I've met the guy who, who does it a few times, and it's been done on literally a shoestring budget for a TV show. It's been done on, like, buttons compared to the others in the category there. And it is such a high quality for such a sort of uh, small budget. And it just goes to show that you don't really need the megabooks to put something of quality together. So, yeah, it's, uh, it'd be nice to see Compost Corner take something away. It'd be nice to see any of them take something away. Obviously, Ben and Holly's Little Kingdom, incredibly popular with the kids there. Best long form uh, between Room on the Broom, uh, The Pirates, and Adventure with Scientists, and The Snowman and the Snow Dog. So a couple of TV specials there, and then a feature film slapped right bang in the middle. Yeah. And we've talked about all of these in the past. I think we're behind all of them. So any in particular that you're rooting for? Yeah. Hmm. Just say pirates. I would just say pirates. Yes, I will go for you. So I'll just say pirates. Yeah, I do enjoy watching the pirates because the pirates is my humour. The others are great. Like, don't get me wrong. The others are great, but the pirates is like a film for me. It's a pirates film for me. Uh, preschool series. Best preschool series. So you got Peppa Pig, Cupootle Five, and uh, Sarah and Duck. I'm I'm all in with Sarah and Duck. Mm. I know I'm not really its audience, but it's a very fun show. It's sort of weird. It doesn't talk down to kids, but it's just kind of like bizarre. It's absolutely charming. I'm with you. I'm I'm putting an all in on uh, on Sarah and Duck. And uh, Sean the Sheep, Compost Corner again. The Amazing World of Gumball. 
for Best Children's Series. It's nice to see a division there between preschool series and children's series, I think. It, it adds a little bit more diversity to them, and um, they're, they're clearly separate, which I like. Mixed media children's. I'm not really 100% sure what that means. And I think that means that there's uh, there's live action in there as well. Cause, uh, right. Oh, yeah, ABJ. of course, because Numtons yeah. is... Uh, so. yeah. I'm afraid to say I, I'm not plugged in to the mixed media children's. I think unless you work on the shows... Or you have kids, you know, mm-hmm. how exposed are you going to be to them? So quite a lot of uh, commission projects as well being considered for awards. There are a bunch of categories for uh, commissioned animation, 2D commercial, 3D commercial. So it's quite nice that they both get their own uh, categories there. TV graphics, film graphics together, stuff that I'm sure people have seen on uh, TV, stuff for like Barclays and the NSPCC, uh, WWF, I assume the Wildlife, WWF. TSB Talk Talk, and uh, the Olympics. It's all, it's nice to see that all the sort of British companies getting hold of these rather than the stuff being farmed out abroad. I think um, it's nice to see such a strong set of yeah. contenders there. So, yeah, that's good. Best short film. Again, we have everything I can see from here. Felix Massey's film with Nexus in the air as Christopher Grey. Have we mentioned that on the podcast? I know we've definitely talked about it. In articles and we may well have done if 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 not we've certainly mentioned it to each other yeah. i do i really like in the air is christopher gray it kind of reminds me of peanuts in a way yeah the americana and the kid problems but with that sort of ver- a very contemporary quite dark edge to it yeah there's some wonderful like one-liners in it which i, I won't ruin by paraphrasing them yeah if you get the opportunity to see it to go and see it there are the very strong films um the top one there Marilyn Miller. Mm-hmm. Mikey, please. Mikey won uh, won two awards at the last one. I think he won Best Student and Best Short Film. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the pressure's on. Yes. <laughs> That's a great film as well, uh, Marilyn Miller. It feels a lot more like the director, like Mikey's uh, perhaps more more comfortable in this film. Mm. It seems uh, in, in, in no, you know, that, that, I don't mean that sort of in kind of he's lazy or anything, but he's more comfortable in the form and the cast and the the visuals just surpass his last film, which was the Eagle Man Stag. They just leave it choking in the dust. Superb. How long is it? Uh, I think it's about six or seven minutes long. Oh, that's good. Yeah, so it's a nice length as well. Always, always good when they when they stay under ten, I think. Yeah, it's possible for something something that is a visual feast to outstay its welcome. I mean, as good as In the Air is Christopher Grey is, I mean, if it was 20 minutes, I would have lost attention, but it is the perfect length. Length is just as as important as visuals in film, I would say. Uh, you know, there's nothing worse than... Is it Bill Plimpton that says something like that? There's nothing worse than a, than a joke that just keeps on going. Yeah. Something, it sounds like something you'd say anyway. Best Student Film, another strong category. Anomalies by Ben Caddy, the uh, Royal College of Art. Uh, another Royal College of Art film, uh, Shirley Temple, Daniela Shearer. Day I Killed My Best Friend by Antonia J. Buesto Algarin. From Middlesex University. Middlesex University. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, the RCA getting some love there. Mm-hmm. What do you think of Anomalies? I enjoyed it. I didn't enjoy it as much as... It's the guy from The Goat in the Well, isn't it? Yeah. The Goat in the Well was was just perfectly timed, humorous, fun. And I could see some slight humour in Anomalies, but it seemed like he'd veered in a different direction. Well, he's definitely gone through the RCA filter. They lean toward a certain kind of film. 
So he's definitely made a film that fits within the RCA output mm. with anomalies. Yeah. Personally, I'm, I'm more of a physical comedy in animation guy, so uh, something like The Goat in the Well will always be more up my street. I kind of like, there was a sort of Hertzfeldian feel to it. So yes, good luck to all of them. There's also Student Excellence. I'm not sure what the difference is. Well, the, the, the best student film are students that are good enough to win an award, and Student Excellence is students that are good enough to win an award. <laughs> I see. Yeah. Excellent. Well, it's nice to, to have a broader range of uh, student films in there. I think that's a, that might be the point there. What have we got there, Ben? We've got uh, Laughing Policeman, Marcus Armitage, Gutenberg by Emily Vilmar, and again, I am Tom Moody. Ainsley Henderson, and uh, I haven't seen the other two. Have you? I've seen Laughing Policeman. Any good? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Fabulous. <laughs> well, good luck. And best motion graphics go to Ardman TikTok Robot. Oh, and there's an Animate Projects film in terms of best motion graphics. So there you go. Something for the, uh, the, the MoGraphers out there. I think it's wonderful that such a thing exists. Obviously, with my, my own work, my PhD, it's about um, preserving animation heritage and animation legacy and things like that. And award ceremonies such as this, it's a nice excuse for us to go o- over them again and to, to look at these films that have been out for one or two years uh, and new films uh, side by side and just celebrate them. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to the BAA Awards. The other good thing about the BAAs, have you seen the awards that they actually give away? Is that the one where they have someone design it each year? Yeah, everyone's unique, which I think is a beautiful touch. We sat down with Jane Pilling. Jane is a an author, a curator, and the director um, and head of the, the British Animation Awards. So we sat down with her for a little chat um, to discuss the, the upcoming awards, which take place at the BFI on the 7th of March. Also discussing how you can get involved because there is a public choice screening which goes on throughout the country so you can reach you wherever you are. There's also a sting competition so uh, I think by the time this podcast goes out the deadline will have passed but you can get involved by voting for the best sting and then somebody who's an up-and-coming animator or an animation hobbyist can win one of the fabulous prizes that we were just talking about. So yeah, the public choice award for the BAAs uh, it's going to be taking place in the following venues so the Library of Birmingham uh, the Media Museum in Bradford the Bristol Watershed the Edinburgh Film House uh, Falmouth University uh, Farnham UCA in Surrey Glasgow Film Theatre Liverpool Fact London BFI Southbank Manchester Corner House uh, Middlesbrough Animex so that we're taking part during the Animex Festival there uh, Norwich Cinema City, Portsmouth University, Plymouth Peninsula Arts Cinema, and Staffordshire University. So I think that's the whole country covered, really. Uh, unless you live in the Highlands of Scotland, there's, uh, there's somewhere that you, everyone can get to and uh, and vote for public choice, uh, which is another award at the BAAs. Here's a chat with the director of the BAA, Jane Pilling. Uh, so I'm here with Jane Pilling uh, talking about the BAA Awards. Jane is the founder and director of the awards, so it's a great opportunity to find out a little bit more about the uh, the British Animation Awards and uh, everything that goes into it. How are you, Jane? All right, thanks. Excellent. Could you tell us a little bit about the awards this year? Well, what we do every British Animation Awards, which I have to say, given it's a bit of a mouthful, we actually, I call it bar. 
BAA. What we do for every edition, and it's every two years, is we look at the categories again because obviously things change within the industry. Sometimes, you know, there's more money for this or more money for that. You know, there's sort of different trends in production. You know, sort of years back, there used to be quite a lot of adult animated sitcoms. Now, we don't see them uh, at all. So what we start off doing is just trying to get a good sense of what's been happening, what's been changing, and then we kind of try and organise other categories, in a, you know, in relation to that. Um, and... I have to say, I was I was really worried that there wouldn't be enough good films to make up uh, a decent shortlist for best short film because funding has really kind of virtually disappeared over the past well over the past decade really. But actually, it turns out, and it's something that just never ceases to amaze me. There are still filmmakers who somehow manage, one way or another, sometimes by you know, working, saving up, taking a year off, as was the case with uh, Sharon Smith, who's then made a, you know, 10-minute, fully animated uh, short film of her own. Um, so after sort of doing a fair bit of research, I kind of figured, yes, there were enough uh, shorts so that we could have that category. And as I said, we just try and reflect kind of, you know, current trends um, and what's being produced. Excellent. Could you take us back to the beginning of the of the BAA uh, and, and how it was founded and, and what were the reasons for, for starting this uh, this ceremony? Right, well, there were several, actually. Um, the first one, sort of, that I ran uh, was in 1996. There had actually been something that was called the British Animation Awards that had been organised, and, you know, they should be given credit for it, by S4C, the Welsh uh, Fourth Channel, which at that time was very keen to get to lure the animation festival from Bristol to Cardiff. And as part of their strategy for doing that, they organised um, something called the British Animation Awards. It happened, and then they got the Cardiff Animation Festival, so it didn't happen again. So a few years after that, I thought of doing it, because actually at that time, sort of mid-90s, was the period when we'd had sort of through the late 80s all that incredible support from Channel 4 that had sort of brought about what a lot of people call called a sort of a renaissance in British animation. That, in turn, had influenced uh, BBC, who started funding shorts, and also TV specials. That's how Ardman's uh, special, you know, the Wallace and Gromit, uh, got onto big screens. We all know what happened after that. So onto the small screen, and then, onto the big, then they ended up on the, on the big screen with feature films. At international festivals, British shorts, British TV, uh, kids' TV programmes, were pretty much sweeping the board. I mean, there was there were several years when the majority of finalists for the cartoon door were British. There was one year when all but one of the finalists for the Oscar was British. And it just seemed to me rather sad and absolutely ridiculous that in England nobody seemed to be aware of this. So the idea was to try and organise an event and see if we could just help both sort of raise the profile, you know, the public profile of British animation, and also do something to kind of let everybody at home who was working away know that they were also appreciated within their own country. So that was one thing. Another aspect was I heard for a long time worked in film programming and cinemas and then at the British Film Institute, and I'm very, very keen in trying to get audiences to see films on a big screen. So... 
I wanted to add this element which was um, what we call public choice, whereby a lot of filmmakers, as it were, get a crack at, a, at another prize, as well as all the categories which are judged by peer groups, specialists in the field, other animators, um, people you know, from across the whole range of um, industries that are involved in animation. I also wanted to put some programmes together which would include short films, graduation films, music videos, and animated commercials, which I think were, you know, were a very, very important part of British animation at the time, and actually show those to audiences and get them to vote. So it was, it, it was really that idea about trying to get a little bit more recognition within the UK and to also um, find a way to give some uh, cinema screenings to a lot of work that was absolutely fantastic. At the time, Channel 4 used to sort of show it at 1 o'clock in the morning, and not everybody would have, would have been watching then. So, so that, was, that was the idea. Excellent. I think uh, one of the one of the main things that strikes you about the British Animation Awards is if you imagine a, a place without it, uh, as you as you mentioned, all the people in Hollywood and, and throughout the world were and, and, and separate festivals were celebrating these things. But there was nothing central. It's quite important, isn't it? This kind a uh, kind of legacy for British animation, which I think that the BAAs is kind of uh, championing. Well, I, I I feel so. I think also what has struck me, and although I think it's changed quite a lot, there's still a little bit of it, was how sort of segmented British animation was insofar as, you know, all people doing children's kind of knew each other, and, you know, we have the uh, BAFTA Juniors, which is an awards for everything that's going on in, um, in uh, children's, children's TV, TV programming. You have the sort of world of commercials, which was starting to overlap with the short film short filmmaking, because a lot of the short films that were funded by Channel Four were actually produced within and made at a lot of those studios who were also doing commercials. But it it, it just seems there was all these different sectors, and often they didn't know each other that well. And what I wanted to do with the awards was to really try and make an event where we brought all those very, very different areas together. And we just tried to mix it up. It's a very, very important, uh, one of the very important functions I feel about, about BAR is that it's fantastic for networking. You can meet people who you wouldn't necessarily have any other opportunity to meet unless you were lucky enough and had the money to be at an international festival where your, your film was in and you met another Brit who'd also been lucky enough to have enough money to pay for themselves to go there. So um, that, that kind of socialising side was also very, very important. And, you know, over the years, it's been absolutely brilliant. I remember um, there, was, there was one year where Gosbrook Parker was there. We'd had uh, Dave McKee McKean on the jewellery, they met up, they'd been at college together 20 years previously and had never seen each other since, and they were really, really chuffed to find each other. And so we, we, we do feel that that's kind of really important. And I think another thing that's maybe worth point, pointing out is the usual way that awards ceremonies are funded is by selling tables at, you know, inordinately high prices, so that, you know, sort of people that sit at tables, their companies pay for them, which is fine, except, as we know, and lots of animators and people making short films on their own don't necessarily have a big company behind them. 
and people sort of sit with their colleagues and then maybe later on after they've all had a bit of a bit to drink they'll do a bit of table hopping and I wanted this to be sort of in a sense much more democratic much more we hold it in an auditorium so you might have you know a very important TV executive sitting next to you know recently graduated student the idea is that there is no special VIP bit it really is about trying to facilitate as many people getting to know as many other people as they can it is a it is a great opportunity. Um, having attended the awards previously, I, I I agree with you there. But one of the uh, the other things that's so uh, charming, I'll say charming, charming about the awards is the actual awards themselves. Is that each one is crafted um, by by a previous winner or by somebody uh, held in high regard in the industry? Can you tell us a little bit more about them? Well, it came about because when when we started the awards. The one thing that we couldn't give winners is probably the thing that they would most appreciate, which is a large dollop of money. Again, a lot of international festivals that are very, very well funded by their governments um, or by the city in which, they're, in which they're held, they actually kind of give cash. We weren't in a position to do that. The other thing that also occurred to me, because over the years, I obviously I, I've attended a lot of international festivals, I would often be asked to collect the prize for a British, you know, a British filmmaker who, who wasn't there. And although there are obviously some really iconic awards, you know, obviously the Oscar, BAFTAs, it does have to be said that sometimes the kind of award object is not necessarily that pretty. Um, so what I thought, and because I really wanted to make the awards completely different, a lot more fun than any other awards in the world. I thought maybe what we could do is, given that our sort of nickname for ourselves is Bar, and Bar is, at least in English, the sound that sheep make, we would ask animators, both internationally renowned animators and British ones, if they would be willing, as a kind of gesture of solidarity with their fellow animators, to create unique artwork which would be given to the winner in each category. So what that means is for every edition, we have anything between sort of 19 and 22 individual artworks made by people who, as you said, are highly esteemed internationally or in the UK. Sometimes they might be younger emerging filmmakers and it's maybe only 10 years later that somebody realises they've got an artwork by, you know, somebody who's now terribly famous. And it has always just knocked me out how generous animation artists are. I've had very, very few people ever refuse. And then the ideas that they come up with, because what we ask them to do is, please create an artwork which it has to feature one or more sheep, and if possible, a visual reference to Britain and or animation. And people just come up with the most amazing ideas. And in fact, organising the awards, as you can imagine, can be a little bit of a pain in the backside at times, we have to spend a lot of time raising money, it's logistically very complicated, blah, 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 isn't it terrible? But one of the things that, for me, sort of really makes it worthwhile and it's so exciting is when those, um, when those bar awards actually start coming in because you could just never imagine what people come up with. We've got one this time, not finished yet, but uh, one of our bar artists has actually created a board game. I have no idea how that's going to work. 
I'm even more worried about how we're going to frame it. Um, but it is just, and I think it also says something about the way that animation just has that special kind of creative wit about it. And it gives people a chance to kind of, to demonstrate that. Um, we've also, in the Annecy Festival, have actually did an exhibition of them several years back. And one of the things that was really difficult because Annecy insisted that it had to be the originals, which is great actually because a lot of them are not just flat. Some of them are sculptures. Um, they come in all kinds of guises. And we had to go back to winners and say, would you mind putting us your prize for the Annecy exhibition? And some people took an awful lot of persuading. They were very worried that something might happen to their award in transit or they'd never get it back or whatever. But luckily that didn't happen. They are, uh, they are pieces of beauty. The, uh, I think the fascinating thing about them, and, and as you say, it's um, a testament to the, the sort of animator's wit, is that I'm sure they don't all work together. I'm sure they don't all contact each other and say, oh, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. But every single one of them is unique. You'll have ceramics, you'll have a, a, a picture, you'll have... Uh, there was a golden fleece two years ago, things yeah, like that. Derek Hayes. Derek Hayes, I... Normally, we try and win the changes, so I ask different people every time, but there are a couple of, uh, as I say, we rather pompously call them bar, you know, official bar artists, who have proved so extraordinarily inventive. We actually ask them, you know, every time, would you mind doing another one? And I think now it's got to the point where, you know, everybody wants to know what Derek Hayes has done because every single time he comes up with an absolutely amazing concept and, and it's just it's just great um, to see to see see the work that he's done. Excellent. Well the the creativity is not just um, for the, the artists and animators um, that people may have heard of. There's also a sting competition as well, isn't there? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because again one of this idea about trying to at least sort of give everybody a fair crack at the whip. One of the things that I had sort of realised is over the past several years, a lot of colleges have sort of changed their orientation somewhat. So we have a category for best short film. But quite a lot of courses now, because they're, you know, obviously very concerned about uh, trying to make students kind of employable, no longer necessarily have the means or or feel it is appropriate to encourage their students to make a short film when they graduate. They might often give them exercises to do, uh, you know, sort of uh, fake uh, MTV sting, all kinds of sort of exercises in particular genres which they can put on their show reels and hopefully that might help get them some work. So thinking, and you know, there are some colleges where the standard is very good, but they never had that many short films to actually enter. So the idea was we would um, we would take the idea of the bar prize, um, the sheep, and we'd offer both students and freelancers, because it's really good for freelancers to kind of remind everybody what they can do, um, and say, yeah, if you can come up with something animated, it can be anything from, like, you know, four or five seconds to, you know, a little bit longer on that theme. And... We had no idea how it was going to work. We started getting them in. I think we ended up with over 40,000 views online. And we asked people to vote. And then some of the uh, front runners were, were then judged by a professional jury. And it was just, it was, again, I mean, 
everybody's going to have different views. Some are going to be stronger than others. But it was a great way for a lot of people to get a little bit of profile. And also, as well as the public voting, again, I thought we felt it was very important that the final jury was made up of professionals, people in the advertising agencies for whom this kind of thing, you know, is exactly what they're looking for. People who can do something very, very creative, very interesting to a particular brief. And so we've, we're doing that again this year. They're just starting to come in now, and we're hoping that we'll see as many uh, strong entries as we did last time. Excellent. So until the awards on the on the 7th of March, the people can get involved by obviously voting for those stings on, on the BAA uh, Vimeo page. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can also see the public choice screenings that are being shown around the country. Yeah, uh, and I really, really hope that people will go out and see those screenings. We often get people saying, why don't you do it all online? And one very obvious reason is that People can vote themselves or sometimes those kind of competitions are really more competitions about who's got the most friends. But it is also about giving people a chance to see a range of work. As I said, it's short films, graduation films, animated music videos, animated commercials together on a big screen in the dark, which I think just sort of slightly increases your, your concentration and your sort of powers of appreciation. It's also, I think, a fantastic opportunity for filmmakers to get some feedback. A lot of filmmakers will go to those screenings. Um, they then get a chance to sort of talk to the audience afterwards if, if they wish to. We also hope, and often it does work like that, that we get a little bit of coverage for people, especially if they're related to any of the local venues, because we do try and make sure that we have as many venues around the UK, and that ranges, you know, Northern Ireland, Scotland. Um, so it's not just a London-based affair. Excellent. Well, Jane Billing, thank you very much for talking to Squiggly today, and uh, good luck with the BAA Awards. And I hope to see you there. So that was Jane Pilling of the British Animation Awards talking a little about uh, what they do over there. So, yes, definitely make sure to check out some of these public choice screenings and uh, let your voice be heard. Oh, yes. I'm a real fan of her uh, writing. I have a few books of hers, and uh, they're sort of interesting, I think, cultural studies of particular time periods of animation, two in particular. One's uh, Reader in Animation Studies, and the other is, I think, came out last year or the year before it's called animating the unconscious mm-hmm. and i'm th- pretty sure last month or the month before i put up a review of that one yeah it's on the site it has some uh, good insight into themes of sexuality and animation it's slightly unfortunate in the sense that like just after a whole bunch of like very popular very well-made films dealing with sex with animation were sort of released and started doing the rounds so you know, maybe there'd be a second edition that would include some of them. Stuff like Michaela Pavlasova and, and people like that. You know, it was a very enjoyable read. She knows her stuff. I think she edited that one, so it had a bunch of contributing authors. But the skill, I think, of an editor for that kind of book project is, is getting people who have their own approaches and their own writing styles, putting it together in a way that actually flows as one reading experience. Because inevitably, people are going to be better at writing than others or have different ways of communicating 
their ideas and I thought that was all arranged really well and uh, had some really great segments in it on sound production approaches to using music and animation stuff that was more sort of technical but presented in a, a an interesting way you sort of scanned dope sheets scanned uh, musical annotations that kind of stuff the behind the scenes stuff that you know geeks like me really really like so uh, uh, yeah it's one to look out for animating the unconscious and yes, I'm looking forward to the BAAs myself. I haven't actually been to one. Filed under the same category as Annecy, where I would go when I was going to get a film in. Well, it's good to get a head start. You know what to expect now. Not that the world has, has completely turned its nose up at, at my work, but I figure if you just wait and wait and wait, it could take a while. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I have my uh, my world-changing film in me just yet. I plan to put up the the film that's going to win all the awards and make me the most beloved character on the animation scene when I'm about 47, when I have, like, everything else that I need to do is done. You know, like what I was talking about before, about those people who were, you know, played by self-doubt, and uh, it's all about the process for them and the end result. I'm not one of those people at all. I'm completely the other kind. I'm the narcissist who just needs validation. <laughs> Well, we hope to be there, so if anyone's uh, around at the BAAs, come say hello. So yes, the BAA Awards, 7th of March um, at the BFI in London. First podcast of the new year done. We barrel through them these days. We're naturals, Steve. We're naturals! All natural goodness. Thank you to everyone who appeared in the first squiggly podcast of the new year. Daniel Souza, the director of Feral, which is, of course, available on Vimeo. The director of the BAA Awards, Jane Pilling. Don't forget, you can see the public choice screenings nationwide. Go on the squiggly website for more details. We'd like to thank Amid Amidi from Cartoon Brew for sharing some uh, wisdom and his time at the Click Festival this year with Tom. The Squiggly Podcast is presented by Steve Henderson and Ben Mitchell. It is produced and edited by Ben Mitchell with music by Wes Allard and Ben Mitchell. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can get in touch on Facebook, which is Squiggly Magazine. You can get in touch on Twitter, at Squiggly, or email ben at squiggly.co.uk. Yes, and we're also on Twitter individually, at Mr. underscore S underscore Henderson, and myself, at Ben L. Mitchell. I also now have a Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Creative, and my website is ben-mitchell.co.uk. And by the way, book two of my graphic novel series, Throat, came out over the holidays. You can find out more at throatbook.com. And don't forget to keep your eyes on squiggly.com and cinemefilms.com for more information on our upcoming Bristol screening in February. It's going to be a good one. Well, that's it for the first podcast of 2014. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you again soon. That frog... Come back! (laughs)